Across the Thames Valley. One more time. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try this. You're listening to The Sports Show on River Radio. This is Extra Time. This is the, the, the sports show. Good evening and welcome to Extra Time, where we unpack sports stories from around the Thames Valley and beyond. I'm Ed Tarleton, and throughout the next hour, I'll be leading you through all the discussion alongside my co-host for this week, Maria Sapsinos, and our panellists, Will Taylor and Sam Setti. Remember, if you want to get involved in the debate, you can do by tweeting us at River Radio Live. There's lots to come on our third episode, so why not join us as we kick off another Extra Time. On this week's show, Will Taylor talks to non-league football expert Ollie Bayliss, who explains the difficulties clubs have had in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Personally, I'm surprised we haven't lost clubs during this time, I think, you know, in the BFL as well. And if we don't have full capacity crowds back for the new season, I think there's a risk that we, we still won't. I think that's when we might start to lose more clubs. It's a real concern. and we, we definitely have lost clubs further down the pyramid. Maria Sapsinos takes a trip down to Burfield Squash Club, whose doors are finally open once again. To anyone of any ability who just wants to have a go, come down and enjoy it and have some fun. And we'll also get stuck into the hot topics of the last seven days, from England's draw with Scotland to Naomi Osaka's withdrawal from this year's Wimbledon Championships. All that and more to come on this week's Extra Time. Yes, welcome along to the River Radio Sports Show. Another packed hour to get through in the company of our panel. And there's only one place to start this week when it comes to their introductions. Isn't there, Will? (laughs) (laughs) It's been quite the weekend for you, hasn't it? I I don't want to kind of pick off uh, a loose scab, as it were, but um, just, just briefly talk us through some of it. Uh, I mean, where, where can you even start with it? I mean, genuinely, where can you even start with it? Um, I, I said, I think famously almost last Monday, um, that this could be the greatest weekend of my life. Uh, it's almost ended up being the opposite. So um, it's, a, it's certainly been an interesting one. It was, I mean, there were moments that were just incredible. I mean, obviously, I'm sure everyone's seen our goalkeeper scoring in the 96th minute, which in, in itself was an incredible moment. But as I mentioned before the show, it's all in vain, wasn't it? Because, you know, at the end of the day, next season, we'll still be playing National League football. So it's, it's a really, really tough one to take. But, you know... You just got to be happy we got there in, in the end, I guess. And uh, make for the best anyone of it. who uh, who's not heard our previous show, Will was going <laughs> down to the uh, National League playoff final down at Ashton Gate. Torquay United one 0 down to the ninety fifth minute. Goalkeeper then scores a miraculous equaliser. Allison esque. You then missed a big chance, as you were saying just before off air in the first period of, of extra time, and um, obviously then lost on on penalties. Very very disappointing for you. But you, you've got a you've got a tattoo, which is. <laughs> which is probably worthy of mention yeah, as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I, like I said, I, I, I did just get the uh, the logo on, on the back of my leg. I was planning to get playoff final winners 2021. Very <laughs> glad I didn't get that one in the end because that could have that could have gone down very sour. But um, but yeah, I mean, it's it was it was a really. I mean, it was obviously. I think for the neutral, it was pretty much a perfect playoff final. It was it was everything you could ask for. There was drama. It was a genuinely good game of football, and, and both teams were genuinely good value to be there. There was no team that that didn't deserve to be there. But I mean. Losing on penalties at, at, at any stage of any competition is hard enough, let alone a whole season coming down to a penalty shootout. So it was a it was a really tough one to take, but what can you do? Well, better luck next time, I guess. <laughs> Sam, we'll move on to yourself. Oh, you dear. remain top 
of the Predictions League, which is, at this point, there's no scientific explanation or indeed any other explanations to how this has happened because I mean earlier on we were just talking through some of the predictions that there will be for later today and you said I went to university there so that's why I mean but you know you are top so I can't I mean I I guess the ends justify the means if if it works stick with it that's what I'd say apparently so so we can look forward to more (laughs) tantalizing predictions a little bit later on and Maria of course you you are stepping up to co-host today now I'm interested in this because obviously some of the things that you have have done in in your previous career you went you got a first university president of of table tennis you obviously I mean that the real headline as uh, when we did our first show is is your medal from the Commonwealth Games where does this rank uh, among, among those various <laughs> achievements. Start with you guys at this table right now. Bottom of the list. <laughs> oh, making wow. ma- making my, my co-host debut. No, definitely not bottom of the list. He's up there in my journalistic career. Definitely, definitely... At the top. Well, to be fair, it was quite a short list as well, yeah. so we can, you know, we can maybe draw something, draw something out of that. What, what have you got planned for us tonight? Um, so we've got Will's great package, a little bit of banter, a little bit of roasting of you, but yeah, <laughs> definitely, yeah, definitely, that. we're on to that now, don't worry, well, so Ed, you've kindly let me co-host, um, and I think it is only fair to turn the tables on you, and to let our listeners tell us a little bit about yourself, rumour has it, um, you sh- you made a cameo in Made in Chelsea. And I told you that in confidence. <laughs> I'm sorry, oh, I actually didn't that, know this. That could be on socials tomorrow. Well, sorry, hang on. Okay. What? Well, first and foremost, I know what's happened here. Basically, when we did the intros to you guys about two or three weeks ago, I set it up so that we did your intros and we then kind of cunningly moved on without talking about how I have absolutely no right to be in this very big, large, big brother-esque chair. Um <laughs> And you've picked up on that and now taken advantage. It's like a coup that's happening in front of... And when I asked you, you said, feel free to roast. So feel here free. we are, guys. Here we are. Yeah, I, here I can talk you through the Made in Chelsea thing very quickly. Basically, um, when I first started to try and get a foot on the, on the ladder in media... I was applying to, to anything that resembled an, an entry-level job, a lot of runner jobs and, and anything to, to get a foot up or a foot on the ladder. Um, and I wasn't honestly getting any of them. And I think on a, on a website that I was checking daily, um, I, I saw an advert for, for extras for a well-known Channel 4 show. I didn't know what the show was and I applied. It was quite peculiar because I had to apply with my vital stats as well, like my height and you had to have a picture and all this sort of thing. Um, and I, um, I, I got kind of accepted. It turned out the show was made in Chelsea and I used to go along and, and sort of stand around in the, in the background of, of episodes. And I think in series, series six, you, you, you certainly see little flashes of me. I often, I often ended up working behind the bar as well uh that was a that was a, a thing that would happen they you know i was quite tall and they go oh you'll work you put you behind the bar but the thing is and i mean you you know you laugh and everything and it is funny but that strategy kept me in the industry and and actually my first piece of proper work experience in production was working on a kfc advert and on that advert i met a makeup girl who just spent two hours weaving somebody a false beard out of yak hair but her cousin worked for espn she dropped him a text and i ended up shadowing him on a shoot for brentford and then subsequently going and shadowing him when he was working in poker and I got a job on poker and, and ended the season in Monte Carlo. So things like that do work, but it wasn't um, it wasn't the most natural in to the media industry. Let's let's just say that. 
And, and where are you now? I'm sat with you guys, obviously. <laughs> so, you know, the ends... The pinnacle as of I your just, career. Yeah, as I just rather resentfully said to Sam... River Radio. Yeah. The, no comparison. The ends do justify the Mother means. Is beautiful. So, um, yeah, you know, obviously I've been very fortunate to, to move on from there and, and do various different things, work for the Premier League and do bits with BBC, NBC and, and what have you. But, you know, being able to, to come in and, and do a show with you guys and a local show and, and talk to so many local personalities has been, has been really good fun. Oh, that's great. Well, yeah, thanks for that, Ed. And you've certainly got a very interesting journey um, to get where you are. And I'm, I'm sure all of us will know that this is probably, as I said before, the pin- pinnacle of your career. Um, tops everything pretty much that you've done before this. But <laughs> we'll, we'll go on to the main show now. Cause <laughs> wow. <laughs> And for our, for our first segment, um, our resident non-league football expert, Will, sat down with another non-league expert from the BBC, Ollie Bayliss. Ollie's been a touchpoint for many fans over the last 18 months, giving them updates on funding, league plans and decisions before they're formally announced. He started out by telling Will just how hard a year it has been for football and touch on the impact that COVID had on non-league teams. It's been really difficult in non-league and, and actually Premier League and EFL as well, really. Clubs make their money through fans through the turnstiles, first and foremost, don't they? It's getting fans in, it, it's that kind of secondary spend, the the beer and the burger at half-time, the, the couple of pints at full-time, and, and nearly all of that has been stopped for the vast majority of this time. And in non-league, you haven't got the big TV money that you've got in the Premier League, and to an extent, the EFL, they're so reliant on fans being in grounds, and that has been so difficult on top of that sponsorship's been difficult as well you know if you've sponsored your local non-league football team and you've maybe put you know your local builders merchant across the shirt well you may not feel like you've had value for money on the last couple of seasons because the seasons haven't finished there haven't been a huge amount of fans in grounds seeing that name across that shirt it's been really difficult for for clubs i think as well to, to convince sponsors to put their hands in their pockets again for a, for a new season when they may feel like they've not had value for money over the last couple of years it's been i think easier for national league clubs that have been part-time i don't think it's been easy for for any of them because they've had to that's carry on playing football and, and for some of them that's been very difficult i think if you're if you're part-time you maybe don't quite have the overheads of full-time clubs although actually it's not sometimes it's not a million miles away sometimes part-time players actually command not that dissimilar wages to to full-time players in a lot of occasions and actually I sometimes think part-time in non-league is probably harder because you, you've quite often got got another job you've got to juggle on the side but you still actually have to do those big Tuesday away days and you know it's it is a national league so that the travel is huge juggling that with sort of commitments on a Saturday and on a Tuesday and then training once and twice a week on top of that is is really huge. But I think for some of the part-time clubs, it's been a little bit easier because the way that the the grant money has been distributed when it was available in the National League, actually, uh, the funds have been pretty similar for the big clubs, right? You know, with the, the sort of bigger crowds and the bigger budgets, you, you sort of Notts Counties and your Torquays clubs like that compared to your, your smaller part-time clubs, if, if you can call them that, you know, your, your Kingslands and your, your teams like that. Actually, the, the money that was shared out is, pretty similar for for all of those clubs i mean you just touched on it there the national league have certainly split opinion with their distribution of the grant money just how bad was it for and from the national league yeah there's been a been a few challenges financially for the national league the 
the season almost didn't get underway actually the season was was due to start at the the start of october and it was it was sort of right down to almost the the friday night um before clubs got any sort of guarantee of of any sort of funding there, there was a number of clubs that were going to pull out of, of the fa cup as it was there for the, the national league north and south clubs on that first weekend of the season because a lot of clubs pay players from the first competitive game of the season. So contracts were, were sort of triggered as soon as the season got going. And actually at that point, they didn't have any guarantee of funding. And then funding, it was guaranteed that clubs were, were assured by the league that it would be all right going forward. Um, and it was was all right for, for three months in terms of some funding being made available. However, the way it was divided up, the way that, that £10 million from, from the National Lottery was, was divided up caused upset from from certainly from some clubs um i think a lot of clubs felt like it was going to be divvied up based on uh, the attendances and the crowds that clubs would have expected if fans were allowed um of course fans weren't allowed due to covid and i think a lot of clubs were were surprised at the way it was divided up of course some clubs were were fairly happy were fairly comfortable with what they've given some clubs were, were quietly quite delighted and some clubs were were vocally very frustrated at the way it was divided up i think any which way it was divided up was going to cause some clubs to be upsetting, some clubs to be happy. I, I don't think it was an easy way of, of doing it one way or another. Uh, I think what was curious from the National League was that they they funded a, a review into how they divided that funding up. There, there were some clubs, clubs like Hereford, it was led by a group of clubs, I think Hereford at the, the front of it, that complained about the way it was divvied up. And the National League paid for a report to look at how it was divided up and then didn't actually act on the the findings of the report that it commissioned itself because the report decided that the way the National League had divvied it up wasn't the the most ideal way. And we got to January and the the funding ran out. There was no grants coming forward from the government, despite the National League saying that they'd been promised grants that the government said otherwise. And we've not yet got to kind of the, the heart of actually what was promised there. But the funding ran out. And in a nutshell, some clubs were unwilling to take on loans. And, and here we are now with the National League North and South having stopped and the National League has carried on, but some clubs fairly unhappy that it has. Money is, of course, going to be at the forefront of so much of this conversation and discussion for clubs because it's it's a very real possibility that, that some clubs, for example, Dover, might not open their doors again, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a real worry, and and yeah, Dover, I think, have you know been quite public in saying that they're they're on the verge of insolvency and and having to pay this forty thousand pound fine that they've been given for not completing the season is beyond what they can afford. I think it's a it's a real concern. I think clubs should be given credit for having to adapt and having cut their cloth accordingly and trying to make revenue in other ways. You know, crowdfunding pages have been set up. Um, you know, clubs have, have had to stream games and have had to sort of turn their attention to, to that to try and make a bit of money. You know, if you can sell streams, it makes some money, but it's no way near the, the sort of money you can make on a match day. You know, you might at best sell a £10 stream to a the household of four people but if those four people were all paying to, to come to the game you know you could expect 70 80 90 pounds by the time they've paid the tickets and and spent a bit of money in the, the club shop and, and a raffle ticket and you know chips at half time all that sort of stuff um it's a real worry i, I think personally I'm, I'm surprised we haven't lost clubs during this time i think you know in the dfl as well i think i'm amazed that clubs have carried on whether we'll see the consequences of that going forward, whether clubs are just about surviving now and the hope that we're going to get fans back in full capacity this season and that they can cut playing budgets and, you know, they won't renew contracts, whether that sort of maths is being done 
And if we don't have full capacity crowds back for the new season, I think there's a risk that we, we still won't. I think that's when we might start to lose more clubs. It's a real concern. And we, we definitely have lost clubs further down the pyramid. The knock-on effect of a lot of clubs actually has been in sort of their reserve sides that they've had to pull, things like that. The youth sides that have had to see less less funding and you know less investment. I think we're still going to see the knock-on effect of it. But thankfully, so far, we, we haven't lost too many clubs from, from the pyramid due to this. Of course, the last thing anyone wants to see is these clubs go out of business or not open up again. But do you think there's a responsibility sort of higher up the pyramid to lend a hand to some of these teams? Yeah, they they certainly could be doing more. Um, it's not been easy actually for for Premier League clubs and football league clubs. Definitely, you know, it's not been it's not been an easy time, and they exist financially in a different sphere. But they've got you know different outgoings and different incomings, and you know we we've seen clubs having to furlough staff, haven't we? We've seen you know Arsenal having to lay off staff, and of course they exist in a completely different world financially. But it doesn't mean they haven't got their own restraints and their own challenges i think part of the super league was born out of the fact that the biggest clubs in europe are struggling aren't they but having said that even the smallest donations from those clubs can go an awful long way in non-league football and it'd be interesting to see where the the 20 odd million pounds that has been given by the those six super league clubs where that's going to end up i think you know broadly the aim is to put it into grassroots sport but where and how um, the FA themselves are having to cut their investment in grassroots football going forward over the next five, six years, which is a little bit concerning. It's it's how that money is spent. And if it's spent in a smart and clever way, then I think we could be all right. But probably the long-term survival of non-league football is down to fans and the interest and whether we're going to get fans back in good numbers back to non-league football or whether this 18 months has sort of broken that routine. And, and there will be people who went every Saturday to watch non-league football that have got into gardening or got into bird watching or, or gone and done something else and actually don't miss it that much. There will be people like that. Whether enough of them are desperate to come back, hopefully they are. And hopefully we're going to see a renewed interest in non-league football. I think it, it's down to that. I think it's it's down to the interest. It's down to fans and whether or not enough fans are going to want to come out to watch non-league football. And hopefully they will. Ollie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. Thank you. So it was a really great, um, insightful conversation with such a, a prominent figure in non-league football. Mm. Um, one of, as you were saying before, someone that you used to scroll on and look at his tweets as a as a fan of. I told you that in confidence, off yeah. air, but you know. But, you know <laughs> <laughs> um, but obviously, disappointment for your national league club on the weekend. But obviously, still a huge supporter and fan of your team. Mm. Um, how much does what Ollie say resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's really interesting. Um, all jokes aside, obviously, like I said, when when it was all going on and there there was the curtailment of the national league and all that sort of stuff. I think there was a, a genuine fear that we none of us knew what we we're going to have. I didn't know if I was still going to have a club at the, on the other side of this, to be totally honest, because financially, as, as, as Ollie mentioned in there, a lot of what they, they sort of say and do, it just isn't viable. A lot of the things they do just aren't viable. Like As, as hard as it is to say, without the fans coming through the door, clubs that, I mean, even at Torquay's level are unsustainable, let alone the, the lower you go down the leagues where the, the attendances aren't as high. So um, it's, it's definitely, it resonates sort of, sort of really quite a lot with me like I said I said during the interview while while we were listening to it I did record that interview thinking hopefully it would be a football league club obviously that's not the case we are still a national league club but that's obviously it's all part and parcel of it and I sort of think um the whole, the whole sort of beauty of the national league is there's a lot of really big teams down there that that are all part of one big sum if you know what I mean that there's there's 
Torquay are no different to Maidenhead United or, or any other team or, or Kings Lynn or like like Ollie mentioned they're all we're all in the same sort of boat it doesn't matter whether you're getting 2,000 at home or 200 at home um, and and it's uh, everything he says sort of sort of strikes home and there's a genuine other than when you play each other there's a genuine care for each other that you, that you want these clubs to survive because you don't want teams to 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 not play like I, you know I'm not a massive we've, we've played Dover many times over the years and not particularly got on with them being completely honest they nearly relegated us a couple of times and let us know about it and and vice versa but I, I would never want genuinely want anything bad to happen to them and I'm, I, I'm not particularly impressed that there's talk of them starting with a 12 point deduction next season so it's uh, it definitely it resonates a lot but it's um it's one of those situations isn't it where you know, the, the National League will do what they do, I guess. I mean, the thing that, that struck me about what Ollie was saying, kind of what you were just saying then as well, there must be a unity between those clubs because mm. one thing that was very, very clear is that the National League as an organisation has not come out of this with, with a lot of credit at all. I mean, the thing that he said about them commissioning a report into how they divided up the, the money because of complaints and then failing to act on the findings of the report they commissioned in the first place was was really quite extraordinary. Uh, extraordinary. And... I mean, from a fan's perspective, do, do you feel that change is needed? Because what this has certainly done is really put a microscope on something which I think we all knew as football fans mm. was a truism, which is that clubs down at the bottom, you know, outside of league football, are kind of living hand to mouth with regards to their fans and what have you. But all of a sudden, we've got the very realistic proposition of a lot of clubs being in a lot of trouble in such a short space of time. Yeah, I mean, and even even the, even the smaller clubs that, that are in more trouble, I mean, the, the big club, they, they literally, the thing I can't got, get my head around is they got everything wrong. Like even the, the the bigger clubs who who have more fans, so and then therefore have more overheads because there's a bigger ground, there's more staff, there's all this sort of stuff. Got the same amount of money as clubs that had a smaller fan base and less overheads. But how how does that work out? It should should it not be based on on these figures? It, it was it just seemed lazy from the national league to be totally honest. And it was an unprecedented time. So I think there's an element of of. You know, you have to understand they, they they didn't know what they're doing. It's easy to turn around in hindsight and say you got it wrong, isn't it? But I think to do a report on it, that was the right thing to do. To then not act on those findings is just ridiculous. And I, I do, as a, as a fan of a National League club and as someone who, who follows the National League, even away from my team, I remember the years we were in the Football League, the conference as it was then was something I was massively interested in because I think I think it's a really, really competitive league. It's something that's really, really good. I mean, yesterday's final was a, was a great example of that. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I just, I genuinely feel a little bit let down by the National League in that there was a there was a there was a really good point to be made especially after all you know all the Super League stuff and everything that's gone on over the last year where money's been at the forefront of so many conversations they really could have put it right by saying look let's just sweep this all under the carpet teams haven't been able to fulfill fixtures okay that's not ideal but it's understandable it's not like they're just point blank refusing to play for no reason that there are players that genuinely don't know what they're going to do with their career and and it's, it's it's just one of those one of those things that you you sort of have to you sort of have to get on with. So they, they had a good chance to bring the league together and everything, and I think they've let themselves down a little bit, to be completely honest. So, what's the expectation then from the club's point of view or the players' point of view? Mm. I mean, it's seriously going to be a what do you think a tough season ahead? It, it is, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting. So I, I had a little look um, for some of the local teams and what sort of what they were they were sort of thinking going into the season. And um, Slough Town just signed a guy called Freddie Grant from um, Bath. And he's, he literally said he's playing for the love of the game next season. He's not that bothered about the money. He's playing him and other non-league players are going to play for the love of the game. I mean, we were just talking about Slough were fined £8,000 for not fulfilling fixtures just before the season was curtailed. Those fixtures didn't even end up meaning anything. So it was just cost for nothing. 
was travelling for nothing. It was paying players for nothing. It didn't mean anything. So why should they have to pay that £8,000 fine? But it's going to be hard for, for clubs, players and managers alike. Of course it is. I mean, Bracknell, I've seen as well, they've, they've offered a free season ticket to any of the fans that have paid for season tickets over the last couple of years, which is a great initiative. And it's, it's really nice to see that they're, they're backing it. But also, they need the money. They need, these, they, they need money coming through the doors to keep themselves afloat. I mean, players, I, I genuinely worry that there's going to be a, a real shortage of, of non-league footballers going forward. Because if the money's not there to make it as a part-time footballer, then I, I, I don't know what, why, why you would do it. I don't think there's that much general progression with the amount of money that's there at the minute. Freddie Grant, like I said, said it best. He will be playing for the love of the game this season. I mean, I think it's a really interesting thing, and only touched on it as well, isn't it? If you if you play for a, perhaps a part-time team, someone like Maidenhead, and you do have a job elsewhere, it is a national league. You can be going genuinely all over the country twice a week. It's a huge, huge ask. You're training as well. You know, those sorts of things don't seem to have been taken into consideration. And, and as you say, the commissioning of the report feels like a positive step in... in let's face it, a scenario that nobody asked for, but we all found ourselves in, and you can only hope that you make better decisions. But to commission a report to make better decisions and then apparently not not really heed its its lessons does seem very, very peculiar. Look, I, I certainly think it's a debate that will continue for, for some time, I'm sure. But it's time for us to move on. And uh, up next, of course, it is Out and About. Across the Thames Valley. One more time. Across the Thames Valley. This, this is River Radio. Well, now for some pop music. Try this. You're listening to Extra Time, River Radio's resident sports show, and we now turn our attention to Out and About, where we send Maria Sapsinos into the community to find out more about local sport. And there was a physical test in store this week as she headed down to Burfield Squash Club to join in a session with their junior players. Well, I'm inside Burfield Squash Club now, and as you can hear behind me, training is well underway. The hot heat outside has not stopped the juniors from turning up in force. I'm here to speak to the chairman, Richard May. So, Richard, what's the history of the club? The squash club was was built in about 1977 by Reading Civil Service Club as a facility for civil service uh, locally to play. Uh, at that time, squash was very big, so it was one of lots of clubs locally. Changed over to being a locally run uh, Burfield Community Sports Club around about 2009. But the squash club effectively carried on as it, as it was with many of the same members. The difference now is, is that anybody can, can join the club. And what's the club structure like? We've got two courts and we run two adult senior teams. Uh, squash is mixed, so the teams are both men and ladies uh, in the Berkshire County League. We have a a business league team that plays out of here and we have a vets team. A vets in squash is defined as over 45. We've got 110 members. We have uh, the junior section, very big. You're here today and it's, the juniors are training in the background. And they are again split uh, boys and girls and um, we, we don't dictate that. Who, who turns up and wants to play. And obviously squash is an indoor sport, one of the last to return after the pandemic. What was the impact of the pandemic on the club? We obviously were closed. Uh, we also suspended all the memberships. You couldn't be asking people to pay money to something they couldn't come and do. So effectively, it was basically not, not nothing was happening here for ages. Were there any positives that subsequently happened due to the closure of the club? One thing we did in the pandemic was we took a look at what we had and we've done a little bit of work on the club. So, you know, we've done some refurbishment work. We've changed our light meters to contactless. Again, that within... within pandemic in mind people used to use the light meters with pound coins um, 
that doesn't work anymore because people don't get change. <laughs> no one uses cash, you know. So, so they're now contactless. That's been a, we were one of the first four clubs in the country as a squash club to go over to contactless payments for the light meters. We also on the booking system that's totally um, remote as well. So you can you can sit you can be at home and you can look up if, if the squash club's got anybody booked. But obviously it must feel amazing to be back. What's the atmosphere for all the members? Those of us who are brave enough to reappear are, are absolutely up for it and um, I really want to give it a go. There's a lot of sort of um, latent nervousness about mixing and, and, and playing again. So it's not been gung-ho. Um, it's not as busy as it used to be, but we're getting there. I think, it, I think you know, subject to, to the sort of the expected full release coming up in the near future, I think it'll, it'll just build and build. So what do you think draws people to the sport of squash? Well, if you're a squash player, you do get a great... There's a lot of pleasure out bashing a little green ball up and down a wall um, and around a court and having a run around. And it's something you can do. It doesn't take that long. It's a good workout and, and it's also quite enjoyable. There's a lot to it once you get, once you get, once you get going and um, an awful lot more to get good at it. And, um, and people can. After the junior session was finished, I was fortunate enough to speak to Richard's son, Gareth, who is a level three coach and helps out with the development side of the club, while also representing the club competitively. Gareth, for you as a coach of the juniors, what does it feel like to be back and to see players that perhaps you haven't seen for so long? Yeah, it's great. It's brilliant to be back. Um, Just so nice to have that normality of coming down on Sunday morning, seeing the kids running around, hitting the ball and enjoying it, you know, making loads of noise and just generally having a good time hitting squash balls again. And what's been the impact of the closure of the club on the juniors? A lot of them recognise how much they definitely want to come back. We had one person not come back from the people that were coming pre-lockdown. In terms of their performance, most of them it's obviously completely stopped their improvement which is a real shame a lot of them have grown you know half a foot or a few inches and it just helps to hit the ball a little bit harder and in squash if you can get it to the back it's really really good but in terms of match play and for us generally as a club it's been a bit of a bit of a shame because we started in 2018 and then we built from like one two kids that's doing there now to like 18 to 20 across the Sunday and then obviously the pandemic stopped and then we were a bit worried and just finally, how would you describe the club as a whole? I'd say that we are very welcoming in just to anyone of any ability who just wants to have a go, come down and enjoy it. We will find a group and we will give you a, an opportunity to, to hit the ball and also just you know generally have a nice, nice time and have some fun playing squash. Well, the club have very kindly lent me a racket to have a little hit with some of their up-and-coming juniors. And I've been on the court for about five minutes, and I'm exhausted. So this is Maria Sapsinos signing off from Burfield Squash Club. Well, I think the first question that we have to ask, Maria, did you, uh, did you win? Well... No. <laughs> I went on the court quite confident, yeah. quite ready to go, raring to go, sports gear on, there I was on the court. On. And honestly, <laughs> I was say, she was looking for <laughs> looking for I've had enough of this joke, I'm leaving, storming out. <laughs> and, I, and I got on the court, this guy, uh, he must have been a junior, obviously, mm-hmm. um, 
about 17, I'm guessing. And he, he was like, I was like, how long have you been playing? Expecting that it's going to be a bit close. Absolutely not. He completely destroyed me, basically. Mm. And I, I had no chance. But no, it was really good. He, don't, he hadn't been playing for so long, um, about a year, but was a real enthusiast and had started in the local league playing against the adults again. So no, it was really nice. And they were everyone at the club was absolutely so lovely and really friendly and really... They lent me a racket, as I said, to, to have a go. I mean, I'm quite interested, obviously, as you say, it's a racket sport. You, table tennis is your, your area of specialism. Were there transferable skills that you could draw upon and, and use when you were on court? Definitely the hand-eye coordination aspect of it is definitely a big thing. I think a lot of people who play racket sports, whether that be tennis, badminton, squash, table tennis, you can always kind of move that forward and you're always not... You don't come onto the court as a beginner. You come on a little bit a little bit more advanced. Um but yeah, the movement as well and the anticipation, obviously very fast games, table tennis, squash, um, all kind of racket sports. So um, I think there was a lot of anticipation, but as you change discipline and change sports, obviously all of them slightly have their own uniqueness to them and their different tactics, which I clearly was not aligned to because <laughs> I was running around a little bit like a headless chicken on a court. Um to which the coaches were like, you're really good. And I was like, I'm really not. <laughs> but thank you for the encouragement. <laughs> you touched on air. I mean, just how tough was it physically then? Because I know it's obviously very different to what you do, like you said, with the table. How, how, just how tough is it physically to play a game like that? Well, I'll just put it this way. I was, I was on the court for probably about 15 minutes. And the next day I woke up and I, I actually genuinely was like, what has happened to my body? <laughs> like, I had never actually been in so much pain. I was aching in, in parts, everyone says it, in parts that I didn't know could ache. Um, and I hadn't been on the court for that long. But it was, it was a very hot day that I went down there, um, which in aids, aids movement, mm. so stuff like that. I was probably going for things that maybe normally I wouldn't have gone for, but I was, I was drenched in sweat. So mm. I, I really, I tried hard when I went on. There was no point. I was going to have fun and... Um, I'm very competitive, um, so I wanted to try my best, but no, it was very physically demanding after about 15 minutes. I was like, this has been fun, thank you so much. <laughs> but then, yeah, next day, I was, I was pretty gone. So what's the club been like? What's its journey been through the pandemic? So as I went down there, really nice hall, two courts, got a balcony above, which aids them for competitive matches because... What I didn't realise is that you, the umpires, obviously, they stand at the top when they watch the squash matches. So unless you have that ability for an umpire to stand at the top and to overlook the matches, you cannot um, compete competitively in the in the interclub leagues. You can have your own internal leagues because um, they don't need to be umpired. So all of that was kind of shut off for them. And actually, um, as uh, Richard in the in the package uh, touched on, so it's a community club and it used to be a civil service club so they they have next door a bar where they play darts and the football team also play there and i think it was uh, purely down to the fact that it is that sort of setup that they're not so reliant on money and finance coming in as much so they could cut all the memberships and and people weren't playing and i, I think that probably aids the fact that most of their members came back afterwards but also the fact that the the whole facility could be maintained by um the bar that was on site and the the social club that's on site that that has the business insurance interruption insurance that they could claim for and therefore 
that kind of spread around to the whole facility and they and they managed to stay afloat and they managed to keep a lot of their members a lot of their juniors came back um gareth said only one didn't return so they clearly have a, a very great setup there that lots of people and lots of locals like to come back to and i think they're all just really ecstatic to be back on the back on the court yeah, there was some real positivity emanating from there, wasn't there? And, and hopefully they can get back to the levels that they were talking about that they had been at. Obviously, people coming back in dribs and drabs now that restrictions are gradually being eased. And uh, yeah, squash back up and running at Burfield. And some young talents to watch out for too, of course. So best of luck to them in the future. And now we're on to our hot topic segment for the show, the part of the show whereby we pick some interesting sport news stories of the week and discuss them. Up first, we're turning our attention to Sam, our rugby enthusiast, and talking about Saracen's promotion back to the Premiership. They beat Ealing Trailfinders 57-15 in the second leg of their championship playoff final to add to their 60-0 first leg win. What are your thoughts, Sam, on that? Well, first and foremost, welcome back, Saris. Um, Look... Yeah, they, they they did something that was illegal. They they overpaid uh, beyond the caps. Um, the question being, should they have caps? I mean, they don't have them in France, which is why we lose so many of the best players over to France. Um, I know why the caps were put in place. It was to try and equalise the pay structure across all clubs. Otherwise, you would have had two or three clubs ahead and then everyone would have fallen away. Um, look, it was Memphis boys. I mean, you, you, you can't have England and, and other internationals playing down in League Two against other people. It's just not fair. Um, so we all knew that they were going to come back. They took their punishment. They've come back. If they do it again, well, you know, then God knows, maybe Division Five or below, you know. But yeah, they're back and uh, they will probably be title champions or contenders next season. Do you think their return and, and their instantaneous return will be good for, for the Premiership? It will. It, it needs their competitiveness. I mean, you've got the top of the table clashes and the playoffs that are going on now. They would be in that mix and, and you know, it just adds. It's a bit like in football terms, taking out somebody like Man United or Liverpool and putting them into the Championship and, and then going, it's not quite the same, is it? And everyone knows it's not quite the same. So, yeah, welcome back, as I say. Uh, and the next thing you've got to see is where they, whether they can retain the players. That's going to be their challenge now. Just, just out of curiosity, I mean, like, just go, going back to what you said about their, their relegation and all that sort of stuff. I mean, obviously, it's, it's, like you said, they've done their punishment, they served their time, whatever. Do you think it was a fair punishment for them altogether? Or do you think it was maybe a little bit harsh and they shouldn't have, it was a, a fine or something would have been enough? No, I don't think a fine would, because a fine is just a payable amount of money. Mm. I mean, points deduction could have been the way forward. They could have started off with 12, 20 point deduction and had a natural relegation. Mm. I just think the rugby is quite good in some sense going no I don't care right you're down um what I think the RFU didn't expect was the players to stick around I think they thought the players might do a wonder and go elsewhere and clearly the players must have got together in the change room and said right we're sticking together we were the beneficiaries of the rule break it wasn't like the club made money it's the players made the money so had the players walked to go and get money elsewhere it would have been a little bit off so I think they stuck together put themselves back into the league and the question is whether they'll stay or the club will go and find new young blood but you know yeah I think it was the right decision 
Yeah, I mean, there's certainly a story in there, isn't there? For if you're an Ealing Trail Finders player and you've been up against, you know, Owen Farrell and, mm. and Itoje and some of the players that were that were on the roster, you know, the the other day, and and certainly the club have recognised that loyalty that you just spoke of because it was one of the first things they said, praising the the team for staying together. As you said, you know, having the um, the realization that you were the beneficiaries and actually perhaps you you owe something to the I to the club so. as as well you know perhaps that came into it but you know good to have them back certainly as you say in the premiership and we'll move on as well because there was other big news across in tennis now maria resident tennis enthusiast so we'll move it on to you because naomi osaka has now announced that she will not be playing in wimbledon but will be representing japan in the olympics and this came off the back of her of course pulling out of the french open due to mental health reasons w- what's your take on on that because it certainly was a bold move yeah, I, don't, I just don't think I'm that surprised. I really thought that that was what she was going to do. She wrote on Instagram, she made a statement before saying, I need a time away from the tennis court, I was going to take time. And really, there's not that much time between going from the clay court season to the grass season. And if she really wanted to, as they all are quite competitive players, they don't want to go out there and give a, a half a performance. They want to be there and they want to give their all. And if she's not mentally up for it, well, I think it's a, a really bold decision, but also a, a great decision for her um, if she thinks that's going to benefit her. And obviously, Wimbledon sometimes is ranked a, a little bit a, ahead of, of um, the Olympics. It's not a, The Olympics isn't the pinnacle of, of a tennis career, but at the same time, it's in her home country and she's going to want to do that. It's a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. So if it, needs, if it means that she needs an extra minute and minute month uh, month and a half to to get herself prepared and get herself ready so that she can play in front of home crowds and be there and be present I think I think good for her and I think good for her for taking that time away and I definitely think there's been big speculation about the media and the press and how they should deal with with the tennis players and the contracts they need to sign and I think from this the, the doors will be open for for those conversations to happen they definitely will definitely will be the grand slam she's number two in the world the grand slam organizers don't want people like that they're the people that bring in the spectators bring in the audience they don't want not people like naomi osaka and tennis players to to not be playing so those doors are definitely going to be open for her to have those sorts of conversations and and make it a better place for everyone yeah, I mean, you did mention it just there, didn't you? That obviously between the clay court season and the grass court season is a very short time period anyway, and it had been shortened, which had rendered quite a few players having to make a choice. And Nadal, Federer have both had the same thing. I think it's only about a two-week break. But I mean, I, I think I must echo your sentiments there because we said it was a bold move from Osaka because she didn't have to be open and honest about why she was not doing the media with the French Open necessarily. She could have said something else, but she didn't. She she chose to be open and honest about her mental health. And I think a young person doing that and putting that first so so clearly is a is a really commendable thing to do because the amount of times we will sit there and say put your health first whether it's physical or mental whether or not people actually embody that in terms of of doing it and seeing it through that's a lot lot harder when you're faced with the question so I think it was a really a really good piece of PR from her to be that open and honest and, and obviously best of luck to her in the Olympics. I, it's got a little link to Marlow as well that story. Because Calm paid for Osaka's fine in the French Open. And Michael Acton Smith, who's a friend of mine who lives here in or lived here in Marlow, went to Borlay School, who's the CEO of Calm, paid for that fine. 
goodness me, and it's Karm, of course, who will be doing for this big walk for on, on the Saturday as well. well. I mean, go. they've been doing some tremendous work in, in mental health across the board, particularly in anti-suicide stuff. So, no, good stuff. And I think she got a lot of applause. It's also from fellow players as well who, who stepped up and said, you know, actually, we're, we're with her 100% on this. So I think that was, uh, that was really, really good. We have to move on to something that is uh, perhaps nothing that we all want to talk about. But nonetheless, we do have to cover it. England versus Scotland. There were some very bold claims being made by the gentleman opposite me. Uh, one of which was um, four, four nil could be five, but I'll stick with four. And I think you also mentioned, I don't want to bring the talkie thing up yeah. again, but I think you also said this is probably the two biggest games of my life. Mm. Out of interest, how's that worked out? Yeah, not great, Ed. To be honest. It's, uh, <laughs> it's, um, it's been an interesting one. No, I mean, look, you, this, it's, the, it's the nature of the beast, isn't it? You get them wrong and you get them right. I've got them both wrong. <laughs> you, you, it happens, it happens. And, and don't, look, honestly, I, I really thought we were good against Croatia. Maybe I, I flattered us a little bit and I was uh, a bit too kind on us, kind on us drunk after the, the win over Notts County the day before going into the playoff final. So it's, um, it's one of those things, I guess. But we'll, we'll, see, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's, I, I really thought we were, we were terrible. On, on Friday night we were genuinely genuinely awful it was it was one of those things where I, I watched that game and I thought Scotland genuinely looked like the better team they genuinely looked, and I, I hate saying that but they did they, they, they were, I thought they were better than us in pretty much every department it was sideways it was backwards it was negative everything we haven't wanted from Gareth Southgate going into a major tournament he did on Friday night and it was such a big game there was such a big opportunity to to put your flag in the ground and say this is where we're at this is the progress we've made and this is what we're doing as a country to try and actually make some progress in the years you look at how Italy have won their group I mean Scotland are no better than the teams Italy played at mm. all. and I know it's a bigger game for Scotland and it's a bigger event and that's got to be taken into consideration but these these big countries in this tournament seem to be going into big games and just w- and getting the job done and winning them the, the Italy-Wales game is a great example they had a job to do and they did it mm. and we couldn't even do that and I genuinely worry about the game on Tuesday going forward because I, I'm, not, I'm not that confident for it I'm not, even, I'm not even totally convinced how I mean it looks like it might be France if we finish top of the group that we're going to play in the round 16 play anything like that it'll be a bloodbath <laughs> it will well uh, it's certainly an interesting point I'm looking forward to your prediction when we do get to England versus Czech Republic because that's in uh, that's in Maria's roster this week Sam obviously you were watching the Czech mm-hmm. Republic game against Scotland and, yeah. and it was that that perhaps informed how confident we all were that England would go and get the job done what do you think England have got to worry about with this Czech side come Tuesday oh well, the Czech side are going to sit back let England come on to them going to counter-attack as they did against Scotland it, it, they don't need to anymore you know they've, they, they've got through pretty much now third or second I think the worry for England is I don't think Southgate knows his best side still and going into a championship you know like we're in now not knowing your best side okay yeah injuries to Maguire injuries to Henderson Trent possibly but how can you have Jaden Sancho 90 million pounds worth of potential talent Jude Bellingham all these attacking players, Grealish, and we're playing donkeys like rice and and Mount. I mean, wow. they, I mean, they wouldn't make our C team at Liverpool. Most of those players, they are awful. They are sideways. They're crab-like in their nature, and, and we we came across like that. We haven't got a hope in hell, as you know. Will said next round, whether we play France or Germany or Portugal, Germany found their form. They were they They're were brilliant. like off the beat, and look at them now. Nah, England, Southgate. If we get through, even through the next round, I'll, I'll, I won't say anything stupid now. 
You said something there, and I thought, yeah, nah. you leave that to me, Sam. Hold that back. <laughs> I mean, Maria, you you watched the game as well. I bet you. I, bet, I mean, we talked about last week. We talked about how you dual screen with the tennis in the England game. I bet you wish there was something to dual screen with. Uh, but is it important to remember that you know we 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 did take it, but we did draw the game. We didn't lose it. It was. I wish I was dual screening. It was. It was honestly. I think. It was a waste of 90 minutes of my time. I won't lie to you. Um, as I've mentioned before, uh, I'm not a huge England supporter. If Greece were in the Euros, I'd be there. I'd be watching. But I thought, you know what? I, I had nothing better to do, really. I, I'll put it on and... Oh, I wish I hadn't. I wish I had something else. I wish I'd made plans. It was really... It was It was abysmal. It was, as as Sam said, it was sideways. It was backwards. Um, the, they just... They look so nervous and they look like we can't score, we can't go for it. Like The wingbacks made no overlapping run once. I was, mean, what, what is Southgate doing? It is uh, it is a strange one, and there have been some there have been some cause. You know, the substitution of Harry Kane has obviously come under scrutiny. Whether or not it should have happened, whether or not he did it early enough, because Harry Kane hasn't really seemed quite himself. And I think the one that seemed to get a lot of people was was Grealish coming on for Phil Foden, who, to my eye, looked like he'd been the sharpest player on the pitch mm-hmm. from our perspective, the one who could make something happen. I mean, going forward, it, it does seem strange that we we've, we've oscillated from you know. That, that win against Croatia that took everybody so very high to a to a draw against Scotland is it just a reality check? I mean, can I just say? I just, yeah, it, I think it is a reality check. But I mean, also, I mean, we've sat here and said how bad England were. It's also worth giving props to Scotland because they came with a game plan and they executed it very well. I thought, like, I thought the way they they went about it and they did it was excellent. They did everything to the very highest their, highest of their abilities. It one hundred percent is a reality check. It's brought us smashing back down to earth, realizing where we're at. And me, me and Sam have just touched on it there. That round of 16 game is going to be very tough if we get there. It's going to be very interesting. And you're absolutely right. We must give credit to Scotland. Billy Gilmore was absolutely exceptional. Superb. O'Donnell, uh, uh, right wing back, I thought was brilliant. Andy Robertson, you know, led led from from the back, but was very much the leader. Kieran, um, not Kieran Trippier, of course. Tierney. Kieran Tierney. <laughs> they, they do sound vaguely like um, Kieran <laughs> Tierney was, was back, back in so, again. Yeah. Uh, um, what have you. Um, and of course, England, you know, I thought Lyndon Dykes up front certainly caused England more problems than you would have anticipated he might do. And mm. recently, James didn't clear the ball off the line. The ball was going wide, but but we also required Jordan Pickford to make what I thought was an absolutely excellent save. Mm. So, uh, yeah, oh, we are, of course, going to go into the Predictions League uh, very shortly when we talk about the, the England versus Czech Republic game, but certainly, um, certainly going to be interesting to hear what you guys think about that one. Oh, and... Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say something. I had my hand up for all of you listening. Um <laughs> No, I just wanted to touch on you. You spoke about it earlier. The the walk you're doing, the the hundred kilometer walk for calm that we spoke about. Um, yeah, not really a national story, no. but uh, but no, <laughs> but that, a local, that is a happening. river radio story. That, it's a okay, very I guess river so. Yeah, you could you could say that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, can you tell us like a little bit about it? Your motivation behind and wh- and why why you're doing it. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so, so we uh, back in in lockdown in the in the summers. Um, obviously, initially we were told we were allowed out for an hour's exercise um, uh, a day, and and like a lot of people, I started to go running. Um, running has never really agreed with me. I mean, I was a goalkeeper when I played football, and there was a reason for that. Um, <laughs> and you know, a- akin to that England team, I was walking, crashing back down to earth with that realization of, of where I was at. Um, but when it kind of extended, because I lived alone, I started to go out walking 
more when when it became as much exercise as you liked and started to walk for longer and longer and over bigger and bigger distances and eventually got to a point where I was sort of going out and doing not really thinking very much about you know walking 20k 25k or whatever and started to wonder whether there was something I could maybe do with that that might perhaps generate some organic positivity for myself and perhaps raise money for a good cause and um, I was looking around and I found something called an ultra challenge which is 100 kilometers Um, now normally that's sort of over people tend to do it over a kind of a couple of days unless you're an ultra marathon runner in which case you do it over maybe uh you know 10 to 15 hours which is which is extraordinary i can tell you now i'm not doing that um but we are trying to me and a a, a couple of others are trying to walk 100 kilometers in in under 24 hours we've we've raised over over two thousand pounds in sponsorship for calm um, that, that Sam mentioned earlier, which is, as I say, done great work with with prevention of suicide and stuff like that. So, yeah, come Saturday, um, I will be in a tremendous amount of pain. We'll come Saturday evening, um, and probably about halfway there. But um, but no, it's been a it's been a really positive experience to do something like that. It certainly won't be something I do every year, but it's it it feels like it's something I've kind of ticked off the bucket list in terms of raising money for a charity and and actually really pushing and challenging myself. And that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to it to be a big challenge, and and hopefully it will be. <laughs> For once, I didn't actually set that up. No, you just, <laughs> I didn't know what was happening. I could resist. Sorry, I, mean, I could resist. <laughs> I mean, it is a really, really great thing you're doing and for such a great charity as well. So, yeah, I think on behalf of all of us, we wish you a, like a really nice walk and I hope that it doesn't rain. I mean... A nice first 20k is about yeah. as good as I can hope for, I think. I mean, hopefully the, the weather will hold out for you as well. Fingers crossed, fingers yeah. crossed. Right, well, it's probably time to move on, isn't it, to one of the most hotly anticipated competitions in this route. Windsor, Windsor, Ascot, Ascot Maidenhead, Maidenhead, Bracknell, Bracknell Wokingham, Wokingham, Henley, Henley Reading. Reading. Okay. Ta-da. The voice, River Radio of the Thames Valley. Right, we're coming to the end of the show, but it wouldn't be extra time if we didn't revisit our predictions league. weekly competition to see who truly knows their stuff when it comes to sports. So far, naturally, I'm rock bottom of the table with four points. <laughs> Alongside Maria, who also has four, will sit second on six and top of the table, as I've said a couple of times, and it grates on me every time I do. <laughs> Sam is top with seven. Quick reminder of the rules. Each week, a member of the team picks out a set of fixtures that are due to take place over the next seven days. Panellists then make their predictions for each event and will score three points if they get the score completely right and one point if they're only able to correctly forecast the winner failure to do either naturally wins no points this week's fixtures have been chosen by maria and of course you can play along by tweeting your predictions to at river radio live maria take it away yep so i followed a very similar pattern to the last week's and the most anticipated uh, fixture that's going to happen this week uh, obviously disappointing for english fans last week and as a country we'll always back the boys but I have I have gone with England versus Czech and I wonder if any of you will be brave enough to go against England winning and put your <laughs> put your foot out there. We'll we'll start with you, Sam. I, I am actually going to go against England. I don't think Southgate's going to change his uh, spots. Um, he's going to be defensively negative. 
Um, and on the basis of that, I think the Czech Republic, just to ensure that they get a decent position in that table, are going to go for it. So I, I actually am going to go 2-0 Czech Republic. Wow. Goodness me, I'll tell you what, that is a massive, massive shout. And I'll tell you what, if, if, you, get, if you end up winning this week, fair play to you for that. <laughs> I, I, won't, I won't harp on about it. Thank you. Um, yeah, no, I, I, I do... I, as much as I've just sat there and slagged England off, I actually, <laughs> I actually, I think, uh, I think there's a point to prove um, this this time. And uh, I, I thought Czech Republic were good against uh, good against Scotland. Didn't I watched the Croatia game? Didn't think they were brilliant. Um, and I, I really don't think that Croatia side are very good at all. Um, I, I think fundamentally there's a there's a bit of a you know we're, we're all panicking a little bit because of the Scotland game. I'm I'm include me included. But I think fundamentally we need to win that game. We will win that game um, because because when it comes to it, it is it is a must win. And I, I I don't think there's any doubt that we still top the group. If you'd said we top the group with seven points, you'd have probably gone fair enough. And I still think that's what we're going to do. I don't think it'll be easy. I, th- I still think it'll be negative. I don't think it will change much. But I think we'll have enough to beat them one 0 England. Yeah, I've gone for for one nil England as well. I think I think we will get the win because we have to. I think that reality check with the Scotland game has come at a good time because we didn't lose the match and that's what Southgate will be saying we'll need to get a win here we are of course playing at Wembley again I think we'll do it but it will be in a, 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 not in a particularly exciting fashion so I, I say one nil England as well see this this you is do what you keep happens. copying people yeah I'm but I, I wanted, so... my prediction was one nil England and now I've just followed two of both of you and I don't want to do that so I'm going to stick my neck out and go two nil England oh, well, there we go, why then. not Happy days. why not complete the... opposite to Sam um, and the the first fixture that I've put for that that's happening in chronological order in the week is uh, is the netball um, from the National Super League. I thought we haven't really had a netball fixture yet, and both Bath and Bath and Loughborough have had a great season, showed by their high positions in the league. So it's definitely going to make an exciting fixture. What, what are your What are your thoughts, Will? Um, I'm glad you come to me first because I did ask. I'm, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I did ask you both what a common netball score is before <laughs> the game because my my netball before the show sorry because my netball knowledge isn't fantastic to be totally honest. If you think it's a great sport, it's just not. Ne- never really got that into it. Um, so I'm hoping you two haven't stitched me up too much with giving me <laughs> the right idea. Um, I, I just genuinely I, I've gone a bit Sam with my prediction. I've been to Bath a few times and I quite like it. So, <laughs> Team Bath to win 47-43. Unless, and then you, you lot are going to say like 1-0 or something now. I'm going to stupid, but there we go. Well, we've heard it before. The table doesn't lie, does it? <laughs> yeah. So, exactly. going with Sam seems like the, the right strategy at the moment. Uh, I've gone for a Loughborough win, 47-44. Very, very tight. These two teams have, have lost, I think, five games between them all season and Manchester Thunder have now put it on. Uh, but I, I see Loughborough maybe shading this one, but it'll be very, very close. So I actually know some of the Loughborough players, unlike what you thought I was going to say, because I used to go to Loughborough, uh, not the university, I went to the grammar school up there. So I would have picked Loughborough, if using my illogical manner to win. But uh, Susie Liversidge, who used to play for the Eagles here in Maidenhead, is one of the players there. Uh, so I'm going to go very similar, but I'm going to go 48-40. Okay. So I've also gone for a, a very similar approach. I have gone Team Bath, but uh, a girl I went to school with, Sophie Drakeford-Lewis, actually mm-hmm. plays for Team Bath. And I thought, you know what, I'll stick local as well. And, like, and my mum grew up in Bath, so if we're going on places we've been to the most, yeah. then I'm just going. So I'm go- I've gone Team Bath uh, 42 to 40. You've, uh, you've ticked every box there, haven't you? No yeah, matter I've what, nobody, box. nobody can argue with you there. <laughs> no, no one can argue with you. Until <laughs> 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 Invariably. Um, yeah. 
On to the, the next fixture. I've followed suit again. I've gone with a, a great cricket lineup. Um, England versus Sri Lanka set to be taking place midweek. Um, so, yeah, we'll start with you, Sam. Well, it's the first time I can say that I can follow the Tebbit test and support England because <laughs> um, India aren't playing. Um, so, um, yeah, I'm going to go for England and... No uh, need for a score on that one, oh, is there? We don't no, do. Don't worry. No, okay. I can scratch around for something that was vaguely probable, but a T20, I'm not sure it's even worthwhile <laughs> doing, is it? Will, who have you got? Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether Euros fever's got over me. I'm just back in England and everything, but I've, I've you're overcompensating. Yeah, exactly that. Yeah, if we the can't entire be... age just now. <laughs> yeah, I feel terrible. Um, <laughs> no, I, yeah, I, I think. I mean, we're a good T20 side. We're a gem, generally good. I know Sri Lanka are as well, but we're, we're a generally good T20 side. There's enough quality in there to win that. So yeah, uh, England for me. Yeah, England for me as well. Top of the T20 ranking. Sri Lanka, I think, are about eighth. I just think we'll have too much. Yeah, I've also gone with England. But on to the next one. Um, we'll quickly drop the rugby from the predictions lineup last week to make way for Torquay. I Rightly thought I'd so. bring it back in. The under-20 Six Nations starting this week. And, and very quickly, guys, with that in mind, I've gone for the fixture of Italy under-21s versus France under-21s. Quickly round the table. Let's start with you, Ed. Uh, I've gone for a France win. I've gone uh, 32-6 to France. Uh, I've gone for a France win as well, 31-14. Sadly, I'm going to follow suit on this, but I'm going to go for even higher score. I'm going to go 40 points to eight. Okay, so I've also gone from France. I've gone... Safety numbers, isn't there? (laughs) (laughs) Works quite well going last, doesn't it? (laughs) 22-7, I've gone for a bit of a lower score, but yeah. Well, me and you certainly have to do something to pull it out of the bag because we're right at the bottom, both tied on four points. Sam, as I said, leading on seven and Will sits there on six. Guys, that's the end of the show. Thank you all so much for joining us. Maria, thank you for stepping up and co-hosting this week. The roast that you did on me wasn't as savage as I anticipated it might be, but I'm still very, still, very there's unhappy. There's still time. It's in the, it's in the, the Made in Chelsea thing's in the armoury, honey. Yeah. <laughs> it's there, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Next week yeah. I'll come in with a KFC yeah. bucket. <laughs> well, this, wow, just, just tales from my locker week after week if after. A picture of Georgia Toffolo at your desk next yeah, week. Yeah, okay, brilliant. All right, and on that note, it's time to wrap up the show, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. I look forward to not having you here next week. <laughs> Bye, friends.